0: I'd like to tell you a story today. It's a story of one of the great men of the Old Testament. It's a story about a man you know well, about whom you've heard many times. You may not have thought a lot about him, however, even though he was one of the most critical and important leaders in the establishment of Israel as a, as a nation. Our young subject, a boy named Yahweh is father, or Joab, he came from a famous family. His mother, Zeruiah, had some impressive brothers. Uh, it's likely that they were her younger brothers, and, and maybe only half-brothers. But young Joab's mother was sister to Eliab, to Abinadab, Shammah, Nathanel, Raddai, and Ozem, all fine uncles. But of all the uncles, none were as famous as Joab's uncle David. Now, you know much of the story from here on out. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 22. <clears throat> 1 Samuel 22. We're picking up the story where David had, had fled from the wrath of Saul as he at first was a hero in the land, and and then he became a persona non grata, at least in Saul's house. And we read chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, verse 1, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So we see that his family, I'm going to say probably including his young nephew Joab, joined their uncle David, or their brother David, or however the connection was, but they joined David at the cave of Adullam. And we read, everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is discontented gathered to him. And so he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. And then we read of how he went from there. So... Joab, likely, and the rest of the family joined David as he as he fled from Saul. And they first joined him at the cave of Adullam. And then as you watch, read the story, we see in verse 3 and, and, and on that they moved to Moab and from there. We, we read a, a bit about Zeruiah's boys in 1 Samuel 26. If you flip over a couple of pages, 1 Samuel chapter 26 we read how Saul was encamped opposite David. And so we read in verse 5, David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him. And David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, brother of Joab. So we began to see how these brothers fit into the story. It mentions Joab, in this case specifically, Abishai, but Joab's name is brought into the mix, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai, again, Joab's brother, said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there, lay, there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. And then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. Very confident and bold, Abishai. But David said to Abishai, No, don't do that. Don't destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, Furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, Or he shall go out to battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. Zeruiah's boys definitely had something special. They were just like Uncle David when it came to boldness and courage. But they also had a streak of rashness. And I say is boys because we don't know the name of their father, only that he was buried in Bethlehem. We can surmise that Zeruiah's boys, Abishai, Joab, and Asahel, were about the same age as David, likely. In other words, um, with David being the youngest in the family and his sister Zeruiah being likely the oldest or second oldest, then David would have been their their uncle even though he was about their same age and and for the record it's it's very possible that zariah and her and her sister abigail had a different father than than the all the brothers we we do read for certain that abigail's father was a man named nahash not not jesse like the boys but the his the abigail's father was was named uh, nahash specifically we read that and abigail and zariah are mentioned uh, together again and again they're always listed as a pair So perhaps they were both born when their mother was married to Nahash, who died, and then their their mother then married Jesse, unaware of the fact that that, uh, she was going to have a whole houseful of boys to join join the daughters. 2 Samuel chapter 2, if we keep keep going in the story, 2 Samuel chapter 2. The next time we read about Joab, is when he is a captain of some of the men who followed David. So we, we read here in second in Samuel chapter two and verse twelve. Now Abner the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbasheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So now we're reading specifically about about Joab as a, a captain over these men. And we read here verse, uh, 13. Again, they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And then Abner said to Joab, so they're, they're now opposite, uh, they're, they're adversaries here. Abner is a follower of Saul, Joab, a follower of David. Says, let the young men, Abner said, now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. And so they arose and went over by number, twelve from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his, his sword into the opposite side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So that progressed into a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now, now it says, verse 18, the three sons of Zeruiah were there. Joab and Abishai, we've already, we've already talked about them. And we also see now Asahel's name is mentioned. But Asahel had a special gift of being fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So Asahel pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. So as they were retreating, he was leading the pack and he was right on the heels of abner and would not give up and so he said verse or slow down and abner said to him verse 21 turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself so apparently this was as they were on the run and as they were there was this 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 pursuit this is abner speaking over his shoulder saying basically you better take some armor if you're going to keep after me like this with the idea that there will be consequences he says verse uh, verse 21 but Asahel would not turn aside from following him so abner said again to asahel turn aside from following me why should i strike you to the ground how then could i face your brother joab however he refused to turn aside therefore abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back and he fell down there and died on the spot almost as if he was right on his heels and And Abner just jammed the spear, the backside of the spear, as he was on him, into him him and and killed him. So, therefore, we see verse 23. So it was that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, stopped, stood still. Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down when they came to the hill, hill of Amma, which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. The children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand at the top of the hill. And basically this was when they called a truce. But this day, a day of bravery and and leadership, where Joab led the men of David in victory, was marred by the useless death of his brother Asahel. Now, as David began to grow in power over Israel... Joab shined as the commander of the troops. Let's go to 1 Chronicles chapter 11. 1 Chronicles chapter 11. 11. 1 Chronicles chapter 11. And verse 4. Then David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, This is verse 4 of uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 11, where the Jebusites were the inhabitants of the land. But the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, You shall not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said, Whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be a chief and captain. And Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first and became chief. Small verse. Just a, a little bit of a mention there, but we read from, we get the the gist that this was a man of courage. This was a man of bravery. This was a man who is not who who is who is willing to take the lead. And in fact, his bravery and his courage and leadership was so great that he was the one who led men of the caliber of which we read, uh, for example, um, later in this chapter. In verse 10, these were the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom. And we begin to read the, this, this chapter, or the central part of this chapter, of these men who were, they're called the mighty men, who faced other men in battle, faced dozens and dozens of, of armed adversaries. And Joab was the one who led them. He was the one who was considered the chief among these men. Gives you an idea of his capabilities and his caliber when you see the men that he led. David's mighty men. Second Samuel, back to Second Samuel chapter 8. Picking up the story back in Second Samuel chapter 8. We read here in verse 15, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. So Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Zeruiah was a scribe. But we see that Joab was over the army second Samuel chapter 10 next page we come to chapter 10 and verse 1 it happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died and Hanun, his son reigned in his place and David said I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash and this is uh, likely a different Nahash than the one that was we I was mentioned before some will con- conflate them but I, I think that uh, the case is not strong at all but Anyway, his name was Nahash in this case. David, this was a a ruler of the Ammonites. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Therefore Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. In other words, he was not respecting their diplomatic effort and did not go over very well because David got the message. Because we read here verse uh, 5, when they told David he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return story continues when the people of Ammon, we see when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Macha 1,000 men, and from Ishtob 12,000 men. And what did David do? When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. So we see that Joab, again, was one who demanded respect and one who was was seen as a leader of men and one that David trusted. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and all his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Last and one more verse that shows how David trusted Joab as the leader of of all of his of his army. Joab was one tough dude, and you might say that he was instrumental personally through through his bravery, through his courage, through his leadership for the success of David as he ro- rose to consolidate his, his role as king, at least to a large degree. And in, in some ways, you might say, maybe Joab doesn't get enough credit. You see, because Joab had one of the hardest jobs of all. When I was a boy, my Grandpa Oakes used to say that there's an old saying about the instruments in the orchestra. He said, you know what the hardest instrument to play is? Second fiddle. Now, if you've ever been in an orchestra or in a band, you know that there's a certain honor or prestige that goes along with being first chair. Being first chair means you've, you've won the, the place of the best musicians in that, in that section. Uh, being, you, you might be challenged, of course, and you might lose that spot, but for the time being, if you are the first chair, you're the best. At least in that section. You play the first part, you get the best parts, you get the solo parts, you're the best. And in an orchestra, there is a there's a particular honor and prestige that goes along with being the first chair in the violin section, since the first violin is also considered concert master, or basically the, the premier leader of the of the orchestra. And this is why. He or she comes in before the conductor. If you go to a concert, you'll hear, if you go to see the, the Charlotte Symphony, you'll and you're there 10 minutes early, you sit down, you'll hear the orchestra warming up, up until just a, about a minute before the concert is supposed to begin. And then there'll be a little bit of a hush, and then there'll be a clapping. And it won't be the conductor, but it will be the first violinist, the concertmaster or mistress, who will, who will come in, and will bow to the, the audience, turn around, and then motion to use the oboe, we'll play a concert A. And they'll, the, the violinist, first violinist will stand, and the rest of the orchestra will tune to the, the concert A. And then again, motion to them again, and they'll tune another time, and then they'll sit down. And then the conductor will come onto the stage, and everybody will, will clap. You know what happens at the end of the concert? When the concert is over, the conductor turns around, and the first thing that he does is motion to the concertmaster, the first violinist, who will stand and take a bow along with the the conductor. That's the the tradition, because the first violinist is the the concertmaster or concertmistress. But right next to the first violinist is the second violin, or again among the first violins, but the number two violin, or as Grandpa Oakes would say, the second fiddle. Now, he or, or she is, is often, as argue, often arguably, as good as the first violin. What separates them? Well, according to many second violinists, nothing. You see, the second violinist plays a supporting role. Well, the first violin is the star, the concertmaster, the one who gets all the glory, who stands alongside the conductor. Second fiddle is a hard place to be. But it's critical, it's necessary, it's vital, along with every other member of the orchestra. Now, we, we all play second fiddle in some way, don't we? We all play a, a, a supporting role in some way in our life. And, and the story of Joab is a fascinating study to me because he is a premier example in the Bible of a man whose life was a study in the ups and the downs of playing second fiddle. Now that we've we've spent the a good first part of the of the sermon of our time so far, familiarizing ourselves with the basic timeline of Joab's story, I'd like to focus then for the sermon on the skill and the art of playing second fiddle, as we focus on, well, you might say Joab, a study, and second fiddle. Now, in, in playing second fiddle, let's go to Second Samuel chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12, where we began we just ended in this general area, but we're gonna we're gonna turn just a couple of pages to to verse twenty-six. Now the first key in playing second fiddle is something that's borne out by what we see with Joab. So second Samuel chapter twelve and verse twenty six. Now now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon, and he took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers, no, that's what he did. Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, and I have taken the city's water supply. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. Interesting, isn't it? In other words, if we are to play second fiddle well, we need to, number one, we need to know to whom we answer. We need to know to whom we answer. And Joab, he did very well at this, didn't he? I mean, we see that he recognized that if he were to take the glory of taking the city, that would not be what was best for the nation as a whole, for David in consolidating his reign and supporting supporting him and his role as leader. He recognized, he had the sense to recognize, you know what, what's appropriate and what's best is for me to now step back. I've done my job. Let me step back and let David come in because that's going to be the best for all things considered. It's something that Saul warred against, didn't he? Because Saul was, uh, was uh, uh, vengeful and envious when he saw David have the, the accolades and he, he was wrestling with it. But, but Joab recognized this would be appropriate for David to have the glory of taking the city. And David recognized the appropriateness of of, as well for the benefit of the stability of the nation, and and so he we see verse 29. He gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. He took their king's crown from his head; its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought it out, brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. So he this this worked well to establish David. And and Joab knew to whom he answered, and it was it was it was it was appropriate and helpful. You know, we have to accept the fact that we all answer to somebody. We all support somebody directly, don't we? Now, I'm not just talking about being a follower in, in, in general terms. You know, we can talk about general following all day long. We can talk about following Jesus Christ in very general terms. And be very happy with ourselves. Uh, we can talk about following perhaps Mr. Weston as he, as he leads the church under Christ. We can talk about following the leaders of the land and how we do that. I'm not talking about all that. I'm talking about something a little bit closer to home. You see, because we all play second fiddle to someone. In fact, we likely play second fiddle to more than one person directly. We all directly answer to someone, and it's a person that we get to know very well. Someone who has a degree of authority directly over us. Someone who may not be any smarter, any wiser, any more competent, any more righteous, or any more anything than you or me, but yet we have to play second fiddle because we answer to them. Now, so the first point in becoming more skilled at the art of playing second fiddle is to clearly then identify who that individual or individuals are. Who that individual is or in- individuals are. Who are the first fiddles in our life? Now, this may seem very very basic, but we play so many mind games, don't we? So many semantic games that we can easily avoid accepting this, this reality, and in, instead of, of happily and wholeheartedly playing second fiddle, we begin to, in our mind somewhere, question the whole arrangement. At least, and we question it in terms of, of how we act and think. If, if not directly, we can think to ourselves sometimes, "I really know better," you know, and, and perhaps we do, and perhaps we do. Now, what are some practical applications? For this, let's let's put this in, in practical terms, you know, an obvious area that our culture tries to ignore is the role of, of the wife. Let's go to Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, this is, this is a, a designation that God has designed within the family. A wife is not required to play second fiddle to every man. She's just required to play second fiddle to one. That's her husband, and she gets to choose who her first fiddle is. You might say. So, guys, you didn't, you, you haven't thought of yourself as fiddles, but um, uh, there you go. Your wife says a high first fiddle. When you get home today, you'll understand what she's talking about. Now, Ephesians chapter five and verse twenty-two: Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. And therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Because when a wife learns to, to be play second fiddle to her husband, she's actually putting into practice and in exercising what we all do to Jesus Christ, our deference and our, our respect and our obedience to Jesus Christ, but very... but, but is able to do it, has the opportunity to do it in a very personal way to an individual that she lives with every day. And so we see husbands are also required to exercise what it means to, to st- step up to the leadership of being, being first fiddle within marriage, as we read in uh, beginning in verse, in verse 25. So there are two parts to this, a wife willing to play a supporting role and a husband willing to take a leading role. And if a wife is not willing to take that supporting role, then the husband either has to compete or abdicate. And if a husband is not willing to take a leading role, then a wife either has to defer more or to step in and fill the vacuum. So, so unless it's done properly, it creates, it creates problems. If we find an example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I think this is, it's a a, a section of the scriptures that can seem, can seem very uh, out of sync and out of step with what would be normal in our society today. But I'd just like to look at it in the context of what we're talking about here. We see, beginning in verse 26, we see that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth in regard to having uh, stability and, and order within their congregation and their meetings, and we read verse thirty-three: For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And verse thirty-four: Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the as the law also says. So, okay, hmm, this is interesting. Does this mean they're not supposed to um, say a word? We have to take this and put it along with the whole the panorama of scriptures that we read about congregations and church. But there's one thing I want to focus on specifically, and that's this. He says, and if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Now, what, what is this talking about? Well, I think this very directly applies to what we're, what we're talking about here. You see, because this is something I've noticed over the years, that when, when a lady in the congregation, when a, a wife, when a wife, is willing to when there's something in terms of even a scripture or understanding a scripture um, if she's when she's willing to to actually talk with her husband about it, bring it to her husband. Versus, let's say for example, some it can be a, a natural reaction to. Even as a pastor, sometimes you see this uh, where a lady will come and say, what do you think about this, Mr. Pastor? You are so smart. And that's the part with, as a pastor, you always really like. And so, and so as a pastor, she says, you are, you've got all the answers. What do you think about this? Can you explain this to me? Meanwhile, the husband stands off to the side like sort of, you know, third, third wheel. Hasn't thought about actually asking him, talking to him about it. But the pastor, that's the one she goes to. Now, as a pastor... You know what dawned on me after a number of years? That, you know what, I can take this and I can give the answer and pontificate while she gazes into my face that is now full of, of wisdom reflecting throughout the, the room or not. But I mean, anyway, it feels that way when you, when you have the opportunity to pontificate on and, and ex- explain all your wisdom but you know what I found is really helpful is if I say, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, well, here's some things you can think about. Hey, have you talked with your husband about that? I, I, this would be a great, a great item to talk with your husband about. Oh, never thought about that, which is always a little bit of a warning signal. But if, she's, if she says, oh, okay, you know what you've done as a pastor you have begun to cement the relationship between a husband and wife. Because what you've done is you've encouraged her to go to her husband. Because guess what's going to happen? If she goes to her husband and says, Hey, hubby, I was thinking about this. What do you think about this scripture? The first thing he does is sort of uh, step back in surprise. Because she actually thinks that he knows something about the Bible. Oh, what well, okay. And it and guess what it does? is It sort of encourages him. To, to actually take some interest and, and say, well, let me think about that. Let's talk about this. And what it's doing is it's training him in his role as actually being a leader in this capacity. So what this is, is it's a very practical point in terms of, of actually the practical approach of a, of a, a wife to her husband in playing second fiddle. And you know what? It works. It works. And so, a wise pastor, I believe, will be very careful at becoming the answer man. When sometimes it's better that he certainly, I'm not saying a, a, a woman or a wife should never ask the pastor any questions. Don't get me wrong, but at the same time, there's a principle here that, when it's exercised, it, it works, and it has it has to do with this role, this this, this practical fact of, of playing second fiddle, because. By playing second fiddle well as as a wife, a wife can, in a sense, train her husband to do a better job at being a leader. The second violin follows the lead of the first violin. The second violin, if you think, if you watch an orchestra, the second violin doesn't fight the first violin for the lead. The second violin follows the first violin, follows their bowing, follows their phrasing, follows... Their, their lead, and when they do, it works really well, and it's a beautiful thing to behold. There's another practical application, and that is within the church. Let's look at Acts chapter 6. I'm just picking a couple uh, practical applications we're familiar with because we deal with them on a daily basis. How about the role of authorities within the church? We have in Acts chapter 6 the establishment of this role of, of of servants who we call deacons who would uh, establish uh, leadership in helping to to care for widows, particularly in this case with the daily distribution of food. I'm not going to read the whole section, but I'll draw your attention to verses 1 through 7 where we read about the establishment of deacons who have a, a particular role. And we see when they were given that role, in this case, to serve the congregation, certainly as directed by the pastor. So it works well when they look to the pastor or to an elder, as appropriate, to, to, to function. What happens is then in turn, they do their job well. And if people will look to them, then the the congregation actually builds in stability. And we see that's exactly what happened because verse 7, then the word of God spread. When they did this, when they ordained these deacons, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So we see that, when we look at other examples, for example, that of an elder. More spiritual authority, but again, designed to assist the pastor. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we read about this in practice throughout the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where we have this this, this beautiful explanation or a picture of this principle here of one directly tied to another in one way or a, one way or another through the body of the church, and we read verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, all the members of that one body being many are one body. So also is Christ. And then he relates this analogy of the body. If the foot should say, "Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body," is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, "Because I am not an eye, I am not of the body," is it therefore not of the body? And it goes down through different parts of the body and how different parts of the body actually have to work in some sort of a hierarchy. Even our nervous system, our different systems in our body, they work in a certain hierarchy in order to properly function as a, as, as a body. So. You get the point. There's, there are practical applications of this in, within the church as well as within the family. But the church and the home aren't the only places this happens. Uh, it happens at work. It happens at school, in our clubs, on teams, in any group or team where we where we function with other people. If we're going to be successful, we have to really come to grips with who we are supporting. Personally, who is it? Who is that person? That you, that you support directly. Who do we play second fiddle to? Second Samuel chapter 10. Second Samuel chapter 10. Let's move to a second part of the job. Second Samuel chapter 10. We read how David gave Joab the job of leading his army. When David heard of it, picking up where we left off, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. And we see the job that he did. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves into battle array at the entrance of the gate. And verse 9, when Joab saw the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. And then he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. But be of good courage, and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. And if you read the rest of the story, you see that, <coughs> that they won the day. And Joab rose to leadership, and he became the go-to man when... His uncle David wanted to get the job done. But there's a second area then that I want to transition to, and and that's, that's an area in which Joab didn't always fare so well. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 3. Let's go back a little bit. Joab was brave. He was courageous. 2 Samuel chapter 3. He was willing to run towards danger for his uncle David, but he didn't always get David's vision. 2 Samuel chapter 3. We already read about what happened with Joab and his two brothers and Abner. Now we read here, the time came when David saw the opportunity to bring unity and, and bring peace to Israel. So 2 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 17. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In the past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it, for the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. So David here, as we read up into verse 21, where Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. David saw the opportunity to bring bring unity and peace and harmony to to the land. And this is what he, he desired. So he was willing to accept Abner, even though he had been an adversary. But we see there were some clouds on the horizon here. Because verse 22, at that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David and Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Hey, by the way, uh, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he sent him away, and he's gone in peace. And Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away, and he's already gone? Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you. To know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing, don't you know he's the enemy? And so, verse 26, when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner who brought him back from the well of Sarah. But David didn't know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately, and there he stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Joab could only see through the eyes of revenge and the eyes of of envy. He couldn't see the vision that David had of peace for the land. Now, again, remember that Asahel was David's nephew, but he saw the big picture, and he was willing to grant mercy to, to Abner for the sake of the nation. But Joab didn't grab that vision. He couldn't grasp that vision. We see here as you as you go, verse, read verse twenty-eight. After when David heard it, he said, "My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and all his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on his on a staff or falls by the sword who lacks bread." He said, "This is not good, and shame on you!" And he mourned for Abner. You can read throughout the rest of this from verse 31 through verse 34 5 6 7 8 9 look at verse 39 it says this is david saying he said and i am weak today when talking about about the loss of abner and and how it had gone down he said i am weak today though anointed king and these men the sons of zera are too harsh for me the lord shall repay the evil doer according to his wickedness in other words even though I'm the king, I'm weakened by what they've done. And so he, 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 was, he was frustrated by the fact that he had been undermined, his vision had been undermined by someone who was supposed to be his helper and who was the one who he trusted, the one who he needed. He, he said, don't you realize how you've undermined me? You know, knowing, uh, catching the vision, becoming a true believer In in the vision of our leader, in particular the one we we directly work for, I'm talking in very in very specific terms. By by seeing the vision of what they're trying to accomplish, what we do is we help success happen, and and that presents a challenge to each of us in our own situations, whatever it might it might be, because we need to know to whom we answer to whom we answer, but we also then to know the vision. We need to we need to try to to grasp the vision. We all see things differently, and it's impossible not to. But but we need to try to understand what is the vision of our of our first violin. With with headquarters, those of us who work directly in 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 the building, this is part of what happens with with Mr. Weston as as we work directly with him specifically as an example. And we have to try to identify his vision. We ask God to direct him, and then we have to, we have to try to recognize what his vision is, and sometimes he's still trying to sort it out. Because that's the way it works in leadership, doesn't it? You're trying to figure out which way to go, but we have to be able to try to grasp that. If we don't, then we're going off in different directions, and we can, without even knowing it, we can be working to undermine the success of the, of the whole. I think a good example is, uh, recently, even some of the projects like the TW. Now, Mr. Uh, Weston has uh, been trying to say, well, maybe we should adjust and, and go this way, and or maybe we should try this. We've been working on different things. The viewpoint has been very successful in trying to say, okay, there's something we can do. Should we put more effort into that? This is all part of what happens. In leadership. You have to figure out where to go, what to do, decisions to make, and you need those who are directly supporting you to try to see your vision, to try to then implement it, so that if it's not the right direction you can change but if everybody does their own vision you can't even properly measure the success and if it's being blessed by God because we're all going in different directions so it's a very practical a very practical application in within headquarters directly certainly within the different departments the same thing applies whereas every department is led by a department head and and has to have a certain vision of how they would like to approach things and those under, that work for them, in order to succeed as a department, have to try to catch that vision, understand that vision. And sometimes it, it's, it's difficult to do because we all think differently. On, if, in, in terms of your work, your job, whatever app, whatever working endeavor you're in, you have the same challenge, don't you? And the family have the same challenge. A, a wife to, to her husband, and, and a husband is trying to Capture what's best for the family you know a wife has to work to that end to support it And also give input but also but but try to be supportive, you know, let's go to nehemiah chapter 13 because I I think as an example of this in the bible I think that nehemiah is Is an interesting place to turn because I just think of nehemiah What a master leader he was what a master manager he was and yet? how much easier his job would have been if he would have had a good second fiddle. You notice that when you read his story? I am amazed at what he was able to accomplish because he always had a fifth column working against him. From the beginning of the the account, where he went out and he identified, he did reconnaissance on his own around the city, he had to do it by himself because he had people who were working against him, all the way to the last the last page of the story, Nehemiah chapter 13, here we are in the, just the, the last words of the account. What do we read about Nehemiah? We said, remember this, he says in verse 14, oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my, my good deeds that I have that I've done for the house of my God and for its services, in those days... I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day in which they were selling provisions. They were just doing their normal, everyday work as if there was no such thing as a Sabbath day. And I contended, or verse 16, Men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath, To the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. And then we come to verse 17. And we read verse 17. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? The nobles, the ones who should have been supporting him, weakening his position instead of of helping him to be stronger for the success of the whole endeavor. And so how much he needed those who would have supported his vision as he was being directed by God. Numbers chapter 13, another example. Quickly, Numbers 13. Numbers chapter 13. Do you ever think about this in relation to, to this subject? Look at the account of Moses, and what a wonderful blessing he had in Joshua and Caleb, because they played second fiddle, with a vengeance, didn't they? They played it with vigor. They were right in tune with him, right in harmony with him. And we see that when it came to the spies going to the land of Canaan, this account in chapter 13 and into chapter 14, when it came to, even though the rest, you might say, if we want to take this analogy, maybe I'm going a little bit too far in this, but the rest of the orchestra was getting off track. Here you had Joshua and Caleb doing their best to bring everybody in harmony with Moses. And we see verse 6, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb, this is of chapter 14, after they went in and the other spies gave a bad report, and then Joshua and Caleb said, no, 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 supporting Moses and saying, "All they're all wrong, let's follow our leader, because he's doing what God has ordained, and the way is clear. And so we see verse 6, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the land, they tore their clothes, and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only, don't play a different tune. You know, don't go down a different path. Don't start playing at a different tempo. Don't stand up and play a different song. He says, No, Don't rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't fear them. And they stood alone with Moses. Powerful example of the skill of playing second fiddle by grasping the vision of the leader. You know, a second fiddle, it doesn't just mean that we go along with It doesn't just mean that we say, sure, I'll play it your way. If that's what you want, you're the boss, I'll do whatever you want. That's not grasping the vision of our first fiddle. You know, the the, the attitude of, well, this is what the boss wants, that attitude is not buying into the vision. It's a tacit, half-hearted, momentary, obligatory cooperation. But it's not catching the vision. It's not really on board second fiddle plane, if you please. It's only waiting for an opportunity to scuttle the plan and do what we want to do. Back to Joab, if we go to Second Samuel chapter 17. See, because we jump forward to, in terms of Joab, because this is an area in which he did not succeed. For all his courage, for all his bravery, for all his loyalty, for all his dedication, willing to, to charge into battle, to run into the face of the danger. And yet, he, he, he didn't do well at getting the vision of what David was, was trying to accomplish. And here's another example. You see, we jump forward to the time of Absalom's rebellion. And, and generally, I mean, sorry, General Am- Amasa, I should say, General Amasa. I'm going to call him General here. <coughs> initially supported Absalom. <coughs> Excuse me. 2 Samuel chapter 17, we see how uh, Absalom in verse 25 made Amasa captain of the army instead of Joab. Now, again, as he was trying to, to dethrone his father, this Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite who had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeriah, Joab's mother. So, in other words, Amasa was actually David's nephew, just like Joab. And so after De- Absalom's death, we see that David, I'm not going to go through all this sec- in the next chapter, but we just go to chapter 19. After Absalom's death, David convinced Amasa to, to come over to David's side. And again, remember, he was his nephew, just like Joab. But we see here he convinced him to come to David's side. And as part of the agreement, we see 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 13. He, he said, verse 13, he sent the message, he said, Say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? He was, literally, as I said, he was his nephew. God, do so to me and, to, and more also, if you are not the commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. And he swayed all the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man, So that they sent this word to the king, return, you and all your servants. So uh, what David, the part of the big picture was, he said, look, I'm going to replace Joab. Amasa, you will then take his his place. He'll have to support you. And that led to peace and the end of the war. Big picture here in terms of David's vision. Well, that didn't fit very well with Joab's vision, though, because we flip the page and we come to chapter 20 and verse 5 where we see that Amasa went to um, assemble the, the troops. Here we see, um, come to verse, let's see, 5 here. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed, well, th- this had to do with the rebellion, I should mention, of a man in verse 1 named Sheba, the son of Bichri. And as a result, the men of Israel deserted David and followed this Sheba. But the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal, and this is what led to the king saying to Amasa, now assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself so they could try to, to fight this rebellion. That was the what was, what was happening here. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time for which, which David had appointed him. You see what happened? This gave Joab his end. And we see what Joab thought of this when we see what happened next. David said to Abish, or rather, yeah, verse 6. David said to Abishai, now, again, remember Joab's brother, Abishai. He said, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So Joab, Joab's men with the Karathites and the Pelothites, and all the mighty men went out after him. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri, so, Abishai and Joab take their men. Amasa did not get there in time to gather all the men and take his appropriate place now as leader, which led to peace in Israel because David gave him that job. Okay. But he wasn't there, so Joab, uh huh, Joab, Abishai, they went out against Sheba, and guess what happened? Sheba didn't get the first attention. Actually, it didn't work out that way. We see verse 8. When they were at the large stone, which is Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now, Amasa was not the target. He was the one who was supposed to be the leader, right? But it says, Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. And he struck him with it in the stomach. And his entrails poured out on the ground. And he did not strike him again, and he died. And then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Yeah, David wanted Sheba put down in this rebellion, but he did not instruct Joab to kill his now his lead general. You get the picture. Joab's vision was very different than than David's. It put him at odds with David. And this was just the opportunity that he needed. For all of Joab's ability and his challenges as second fiddle, he didn't really seem to, to catch the vision of what David was trying to accomplish, even though he was loyal in many ways. He stood by David in so many ways, but yet he just, his vision did not, did not synchronize. He defended David with his life sometimes, but yet he had that, wasn't, had that inability to completely play second fiddle. Now, just want to look at a, a couple other other ways before we before we close. The third way, how we exercise the the role of, of second fiddle. Well, Proverbs chapter 28 verse 16. We read, "A ruler who lacks understanding is a great oppressor." In other words, as a as a leader, you need trusted counsel, don't you? And a second fiddle can be a great help by being a trusted counselor. That's the third role, becoming a trusted counselor. Proverbs chapter 25 in verse 15 says, by long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded and who better to be in a position to persuade and to convince than the second fiddle? One who's close. So we see that in some ways, Joab was a good example of this. In 2 Samuel chapter 19, we're reading here of the, of the aftermath of Absalom's death. Remember, David, although he, he loved his son, and yet his son ro- rose up and, and, uh, and began a rebellion against him. And as a result, we find there was civil war in Israel, in Judah and Israel, And uh, ultimately, Joab led the people in overthrowing Absalom. And so he was brave and fighting and and standing by uh, David's side when others did not. Uh, There were many who turned against David, but not Joab. He stayed faithful to him and loyal to him during his darkest day. So we see here in in verse 33, after he heard that Absalom had died and that his, he was successful in putting down this rebellion. We see verse 33, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber. This is of chapter 18, 2 Samuel 18, and verse 33, the end of chapter 18. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. O oh, Absalom, my son, my son, and Joab was told, "Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom." Now, Absalom had been trying to kill David. He'd been trying to destroy to destroy his his father's uh, ha- leadership over the na- nation. And yet, David, as is understandable for a father, he mourned for the loss of his son. He 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 tried to he, he tried to to deal with his son, despite all that, the anguish that had been caused in the in Ammon versus Absalom, all this, David still loved his, his son. And so he was weeping for his son. So he said, because the king was weeping and mourning for Absalom, the victory that day, was verse 2, was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. These were the ones who had fought for David, and now they hear that the king is grieved for his son. So the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee battle, flee in battle. But the king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And then Joab came into the house to the king and he said this. And this is where Joab was, he was a good example of being a a, a wise, trusted, willing to face the hard facts. You see, a counselor. And so he said, verse 5, Today you have disgraced all of your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. Strong words, but wise words. And so he said, verse 6, or verse 7, Now therefore arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night, and that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and sat in the gate, and they told all the people, saying, There is the king sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king, for every one of Israel had fled to his tent. Now, and sometimes Joab had a... Had a better mind for what should happen than than David. What led up to this, why there was mourning for Absalom, was because Joab had killed him. Joab had killed him. Now, David had said, Don't kill my son. Don't let him be killed. And he was the king. But it was, it was, it's a challenging scenario because Joab knew that if, as long as Absalom lived, there was a chance for another rebellion. And he killed him. And we see, not right. He was taking matters into his own hands. But isn't that the challenge we have sometimes? In this case, Joab, by killing Absalom, it was the better thing to do for the sake of the nation, but he went against his, against his, his king. And that's what led to this scenario. In this case, <clears throat> good advice, and David followed it. And, and as a result, the, the, the day was, was saved in terms of support for David. You know, another example is in 2 Samuel chapter 24, where quickly we see here that we see that uh, David was uh, was inspired to number Israel and Judah, and he says, verse two, the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him and uh, we can see this that satan was the original the one who who did this if you look at uh, the other parallel scripture to this and you think well what was the problem with numbering israel i think the best explanation is that what david was what was happening is he was moved by the thing that god warned about in terms of kings and that they would want to multiply horses and multiply wives and gold and so usually the numbering process was a was was a, a result of wanting to Uh, for taxation purposes, or raising the military. And so this is why Joab seemed to know the mind of God better than David in this situation, because he said, this is not a good idea. Don't do this, he said to David. As we see verse 2, the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who is with him, now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are. And may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire to do desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. And therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. This was disastrous. It ended up as a disaster. And Joab had tried to counsel David not to not to do this. So, good example of being a, a, a counselor as as uh, as we should be as second fiddle. In this case, Joab, he, he shined. He stepped up to the task. I want to bring, I want to talk about one last role that we see, that we see Joab reflecting during his life. And it really is the last part of the role of, of second, playing second fiddle. You know, there are times that we have to absorb for our first fiddle. We have to be a, a cushion for our first fiddle. What do I mean? That's, that's literally the point. We must absorb for them is the way I'm going to describe it. You see, sometimes we, we can help by cushioning their weaknesses, helping to absorb their mistakes without compromising our integrity. Okay? Because we're in a, as second fiddle, we have the greatest opportunity to, to highlight the weaknesses of someone to whom we answer, don't we? We, we have the greatest insight into the flaws and the weaknesses of their thinking because of how close we are to them. We can draw attention to it. Or we can downplay it and let our lead, let our first fiddle, work it out in the proper time. I'm not talking about doing wrong things. I'm just talking about the fact that we see the flaws. We see the shortcomings. And sometimes we see the, the decisions that we see are not the best because we're, because we're close. This is a couple of scriptures come to mind. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7, 8, and 9 where we read about love covering a multitude of sins. In other words, even just the ability to to, to 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 properly encourage, sometimes to bring problems to the attention of someone else, but yet not to keep them alive and stir them up and bring everybody's attention to those to those weaknesses. This is what Proverbs chapter seventeen verse nine is about when it says, "He who covers a transgression seeks love." but he repeats a matter, brings attention to it, uses it as a wedge to gain our own personal power, because we can talk about it. We can tell the people, well, I really, let me tell you what's really happening. I got some insight on this. Because we have a, a certain closeness. There's a vulnerability that a leader or a first fiddle shares. Because you know what? When you're playing first fiddle, you don't always play every note right. And as a second fiddle, you can say, when the first fiddle... Gets a note wrong, hey, everybody, look, they played a the wrong note. Ha, 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 you're, don't, you're not perfect. We Does you know, the second fiddle do that? No, they play just a little bit louder, just a little bit louder, and a little bit stronger in making sure that the part comes out well. That's what should happen. So the first can catch themselves and get back on track. If we're thinking about the good of the orchestra, <clears throat> how does this work in practicality? How would it work with a wife towards a husband? Does a husband ever slip up? Is he ever vulnerable to his wife's knowledge of his, of his flaws? Does she, does she make him weaker? That's what, remember what David said? I am weak even though I am king. I am weak because of what's happening to those that are supposed to support me and what they're doing. How about an employee towards a boss? How about an elder towards a pastor? In other words, we're talking about confidentiality. We're talking about discretion. We're talking about not giving negative personal insight to others on our first as a lever to make ourselves look better. Now again, we'll, we'll sometimes be in a position to, where, where where we, we see a vulnerability in, in someone that we're, we're supporting and we, how we handle that is, is very important. And the other part of that is familiarity can breed contempt, can't it? You know, as I look at the life of Joab, I so admire this man. I have to tell you, because of, of who he was and his, and his leadership and his courage and his bravery, um, but I'm conflicted. I'm conflicted because he, he was, though he was so instrumental in the success of his uncle David I mean, as a man that led, again, David's mighty men, I mean, he stuck with David through thick and thin. I, 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 I'm conflicted because I see his flaws, but I see what David put him through. When you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and, and you read about the Bathsheba situation, 2 Samuel chapter 11, we stopped as we began the story, but you know the story. He was put in a situation where he was commanded to, to literally turn his back on one of his most trusted men, Uriah the Hittite, one of the mighty men. And Joab was told by David, you leave him in the heat of battle. How dare David do that? And that's what he asked of Joab. And when I see that, I think, wow, what a burden that Joab had to, had to carry, that he carried out that order. And I have to wonder, because as you look at the story and read of Joab during the days following, if if maybe there was a seed of contempt that began to grow because of sometimes David's mistakes, and what David asked of him—you know, David's unwillingness to deal with Absalom. When Absalom had—Absalom was defending his sister. Amnon had had raped his sister, and David did nothing about it for two years. Nothing. He should have been subject to the death penalty according to the law. David did nothing, and so Joab watched that, and he had to then work with Absalom. Now, I'm not David was a man after God's own heart we know he was the one who was the first but yet he was a flawed man we, we understand that but joab think about Joab's position where he he had to try to wrestle with serving David and yet at the same time how does he maintain his integrity very challenging and as I said later even in terms of David's unwillingness to 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 allow what needed to be done with Absalom in terms of going ahead and putting him to death when he led a rebellion against him. And Joab finally just began to, I think his, his attitude of contempt began to grow to the point where he was willing basically just to, to defy David. And he killed Absalom, his son, in defiance. Because David had specifically said, in the hearing of all the men, David had said, do not kill my son. And when Joab was brought to Joab's attention, where he was, hanging from a tree by his hair, and the one who brought it to his attention said, oh, he, there he is, but I haven't touched him. Joab said, this is crazy. He went, killed him, just like that, in defiance of, of, of David. You know, from in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, when we, it's, it's the parallel account of the situation where David commanded Joab to number Israel. From this point, it seems that Joab began to really enter in a sort of I-know-better attitude toward David. And in some cases, as I said, he he was right. But David was still king. You know, it's sad as we look back on Joab's life. All All that he accomplished, all his bravery as a nephew, almost like a brother of David, he shared blood with him. He was trusted by David. He was never king. It was never intended that he be king. But because of the trust that David put in him, and his own bravery and competence and leadership, he was able to do great things. And he carried great authority, and, and he had a great opportunity to make a profound impact upon Israel as a second to David. And in fact, if you read the story of King David, David's military successes were to a great degree because of Joab, and, and others like him. But in the end, it came down to this. Because when David was on his deathbed, Joab conspired with Adonijah to install Adonijah as the next king instead of Solomon. And as a result, David finally said, enough. He shall not go down to the grave as in, in, in old age. And he pronounced the death sentence on, on Joab. Very sad, a sad end to the legacy of Joab. There are others in the Bible who played the second fiddle well. I mentioned Joshua. If you look at Joshua, years and years he played second fiddle to to Moses. A wonderful example. And uh, played a very important part. And and there are others. You know, the person in second chair, the person who immediately supports another, provides an immeasurable service toward the success of the one that they support. And we all play second fiddle to someone. And our success, then, is, is tied if we... If we can grasp that, our success is tied to our leader's success as God works with us and as God works with those who lead us. It's in our best interest to to help them and see them to succeed, to help them to lead better. Now, Joab, as a lead general or as a, a captain or as a soldier, really, as far as a greater scheme of things, it really didn't matter, did it? Because God chose David to be king. And those who worked to support him were blessed. Those who only supported them as long as it served their purposes, they failed ultimately. And those who supported him while treating others as competitors and leveling the field, they, they failed ultimately too. I hope that we can look at Joab's life and we can see it as, as a profound study in playing second fiddle and apply it to ourselves because in life, you know, there are times that we lead and there are times that we play second fiddle. Let's be willing and able to do both.